diamonds are the most refractive and the most reflective mineral. And the more people learn how to refine the way it's cut, the more dazzling they are. And people are attracted to dazzle. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, UVA Press Presents, from the University of Virginia Press. My name is Suzanne Morse-Mumaw, and I am the director. I'm Eric Brandt, editor-in-chief at the University of Virginia Press. UVA Press has been presenting through scholarly books, digital imprints, and new media for almost 60 years. Today, author Adrienne Munich introduces us to the complexity of diamonds in her book, Empire of Diamonds, Victorian Gems in Imperial Settings. The storied and troubled history of diamond extraction and trade is woven into the cultural and consumer demand for the stone considered the pinnacle of symbolism for both permanence and prominence. Even in our celebrations of love and longevity, diamonds are the currency. Today our fascination with the gem continues as thousands of visitors to the Smithsonian Institution admire the 45-carat Hope Diamond, one of the world's most beautiful. Professor Munich takes us on a journey around the Victorian world and back to learn the intrigue, history, and fascination of diamonds. Professor Munich, welcome to UVA Press Presents. Thank you. Nice to be here. Your book, Empire of Diamonds, charts a trajectory across several continents spanning from the ancient Holy Vedas in India to American director James Cameron's blockbuster film, Titanic. Can you briefly trace that trajectory for our listeners? Well, I begin by talking about their actual composition and their symbolic value, because what I'm interested in is the meanings that diamonds take on, the different meanings depending on where in the world the diamond is identified. And almost by accident, England, as it's becoming Great Britain and even Greater Britain, it rules over diamonds. So the British Empire annexes India, where the first diamonds were mined and revered. And then it is the economic center of diamonds. And Hatton Garden, which is a neighborhood in London, largely dominated by Jewish merchants, controlled the diamond industry. And the jewelry stores, from the, from the highest end diamonds to the little chips. Also, by accident, diamonds were discovered in South Africa in 1867. And the story of that is really, really interesting. And that changes the world. That's a big statement, but I stand by it. In India, diamond mining was largely alluvial. And when it was discovered that diamonds did not form in the water, which everybody had thought up to then, people from all over started digging up farms. England then annexes South Africa. The other thing which is interesting about South Africa and diamond mining is that anyone could go and look at them. So you could see 
where the diamonds came from. And so they became more sort of earthy, tied to the earth and accessible. It was also the time that there were so many diamonds, so many tons and tons of diamonds. The price went down. It became necessary not to sequester them as signs of royalty or signs of power necessarily, but as signs of prosperity. And this is a gender thing. Any man could afford eventually to buy a little chip of a diamond for his wife and then feel as if he were the king of his castle. You claim in your book that this empire of diamonds really crystallized in 1850 when the legendary Kuhnor diamond was transferred from the Punjab in India to Queen Victoria of England. Can you tell us a little bit about that ceremony? The myth of the Kuhnor was that it was given to Krishna by a god. And I want to point out that this diamond has a name and it was the custom of great Indian diamonds, treasured Indian diamonds, to be named. And it has an extraordinarily bloody history of people chopping hands off and poking out eyes and killing whole uh, families, powerful families in not only India, but Afghanistan, what's now Pakistan in order to obtain it. So it was a sign of masculinity, of powerful, rich masculinity, and signified that its owner was touched by the gods, was kind of authorized in his power by the gods. The last person to own it was Dulip Singh, who was only, I think, 13 or 14 years old when he became Maharaja of the Punjab, which is a vast land annexed by the British. And he had this stone, which when the British took over the Punjab, became booty. So I claim that the Empire of Diamonds start with this transfer it's not the largest, it's not, in fact, the most beautiful stone, and its history in England is vexed, but the transfer of it from this beautiful young boy to this queen who is going to have all these children and all these diamonds, I think is a sign of the kind of gender transfer consciousness of women's power that is going on at the time. Prince Albert looked at it and thought it was dusky looking and had lots of inclusions, which we call now flaws, and he wanted it to be recut. And the Indians, by the way, valued size more than sparkle. It was the star attraction in the Great Exhibition, and more people came to see it than anything else, and they were disappointed. It was made fun of as being dark and cloudy. It also had a curse that accompanied it, that any male who 
owned it or had it in their treasury would come to a horrible end. And of course, that traces its history where all the shahs and maharajas and everybody who had it did come to a bad end. And even in England, after it was cut down and people would say, well, the curse was was eliminated by its being changed to a different aesthetic and a different look, no male of the British family has ever worn the Kohinoor diamond. Speaking of legendary gems, tell us what you discovered about the Eureka diamond, the first diamond discovered in South Africa. And when discussing South Africa, you can't really avoid the questions of race and oppression with regard to the mining and trading of diamonds. Can you share with us what you've learned about race and diamonds in researching your book? At the beginning, when the De Beers opened their farm to diamond miners and then other farms opened their farms to be sold for diamond claims, at the very beginning, black Africans were allowed to buy a claim and dig for diamonds. In fact, the second most exciting diamond, which is called the Star of Africa, was discovered by a Greek shepherd. But very quickly, the claims were only available to white men, no matter what their class, no matter where they came from. And there was a big strike when the Africans were allowed to mine diamonds by white miners who said, how can we tell who's a thief if black people can legitimately own diamonds? So if a black man has a diamond on him after this, it is manifestly a stolen diamond. But nevertheless, because of the degradation of the land, not only by diamond mining, but by other white invaders of Africa, African peoples flocked to the diamond mines. They were recruited, usually for about three months, to mine the diamonds. And eventually, when the diamond mines were incorporated and itinerant people could no longer buy claims, they were put in these compounds which terrifyingly look like prisons and eventually it was roofed over so they couldn't throw diamonds over the fences of these compounds. And there are some really interesting in the De Beers archives of advertisements about how diamonds had cleaned up Africans in order to make them into wage laborers, which they had never been. It's not a pretty story. I don't know if it ends, but at this moment, De Beers, who owns the Botswana mines and shares the profits with the government, has claimed to clean up their uh, racist act and share profits and improve labor conditions. Indeed. Well, I want to acknowledge that the story of diamonds, a big story through a small object, has spanned from India to England to South Africa to the psychology of diamonds, the economics of diamonds, the politics and cultural impact. And at the beginning of the current health crisis, Queen Elizabeth delivered a nationally televised address to her subjects. 
As you know, the Queen's jewelry choices are the subject of deep and constant analysis. And for this historic address, she was wearing a diamond and turquoise brooch that was officially gifted to her grandmother, Queen Mary, in 1893. The British press has suggested Elizabeth was linking herself to her grandmother who helped support King George during another crisis, the First World War. When and where did this connection between jewels and British royalty begin? And how did diamonds take on political significance? She always wears an interesting brooch on her suits or on her dresses. And, you know, a brooch is not, it's not modest, but it's not flamboyant. And she also carries a purse, and people have joked and wondered what's in the purse. But it also adds to this image, almost paradoxically, of accessible. She's like a rich housewife, perhaps. I think there's also a tie to Victoria, who Elizabeth II absolutely adored and emulated in many important ways. Queen Victoria, her image so successful was not that much different from the middle-class wives who were her subjects. And this enabled the monarchy to survive because she became hugely, hugely beloved Not always, but by the end of it, she was the mother of the British Empire. She was a great PR queen. I think it's fascinating the irony that in order to be so beloved, she had to be more approachable and accessible and down to earth. We often associate Victorian period with being very formal and uptight, as you've said, at least ethically. Uh, So it's fascinating that she was really just the opposite, and that's what made her so beloved. In terms of, you know, capitalism and wealth and power, which you've all discussed in a very interesting way, how did it become the rule of thumb that an engagement ring should be the equivalent of a two-month salary? And when did that become more of a custom for primarily men to buy a diamond ring for their affianced? This was a brilliant ploy. It takes the diamond empire to move to America for this to happen. And the De Beers Diamond Company actually traveled to the United States to a advertising agency because they had never before advertised. But talking about South Africa, there were so many diamonds. How do we unload this? Diamonds had descended the prized possessions of maharajas to the bosoms of elderly women in their brooches. So these diamond magnates asked the heirs advertising company whether it made sense for them to advertise. And they had these two really brilliant ad copy people. One was named Margaret Garrity and the other Dorothy Dingham. Margaret Garrity, in the middle of the night, woke up and thought of the slogan, a diamond is forever. And one reason it's brilliant is that it's singular. That is, it says a big diamond or a singular diamond is symbolic of the singular love that this man has for his affianced What Dingham and Garrity did was to make a diamond engagement ring 
essential. And how much could you spend for it? Well, as much as you possibly could. It's a little like the Maharajas, a sign of your power uh, in the Freudian sense, a sign of your masculinity, and in the Marxian sense, a sign of your wealth. It's also a sign of possession. So what you were doing by giving this diamond to your beloved was making a claim on her. I think people are still proud of being able to afford an oversized diamond and sacrifice a great deal of salary in order to prove their worth, their love. I think it's fascinating how diamonds serve as a lens onto all these different cultural understandings, psychology, economics, myth and legend. It's just fascinating. I know one of your expertise is in literature, and so I don't want to overlook that. Until I read your book, I didn't realize the number of literary references to the gem. In the book, you discuss Coleridge's Kubla Khan, Alfred Lord Tennyson's The Idols of the King, Charles Dickens' Little Dorrit, Anthony Trollope's The Eustace Diamond, etc., etc. Did reading these works provoke your research into diamonds, or was it the other way around? And and which of these literary works is your favorite, or, or, or you feel says most about our appropriation and understanding and feelings about diamonds. What I have said about social science and economics all gets made meaningful in literature. So I do start with a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins, which links diamonds with God and uh, the phrase immortal diamond. And that was during the period of the diamond discovery. So I noticed the proliferation of literature about diamonds at the same time that the British Empire was becoming the empire of diamonds. And that's what made me so curious about the linkages. George Eliot, who's one of the great novelists of all time, writes about a lot about jewels in many of her Middlemarch and all those, but her only novel about diamonds is Daniel Deronda, and it is also a novel about Jews. And you didn't mention Walter Scott, and he's not a Victorianist, of course, but when I was reading Ivanhoe, I noticed the importance of diamonds in that book, and there's literally no Victorian writer who hadn't read Ivanhoe. I don't like to have favorites. It's not really quite fair. But friends of mine would say, oh, Anthony Trollope is just formulaic and programmatic. And reading the Eustace Diamonds just became such a joy and such a delight. The Eustace Diamonds are Indian diamonds. And the question is, what can be an heirloom? And what can be inherited? Our heroine, who I got to love, and you're not not supposed to love her, but she's living by her wits, and she marries a rich guy who puts a diamond necklace around her neck when he still thinks she's sweet and innocent, and she claims it as part of her inheritance when he dies. Who owns diamonds, men or women? is central to that. And so I love that one. And I think it's exciting to see how people take 
take a symbol and reshape it according to what they understand. I guess what I'm saying is as a humanist, as a literary scholar, as an art historian, what I'm saying is that Empire of Diamonds is shaped by the reality that people have given to diamonds, both in fiction and in economic treatises and in letters and in diaries and in movies. I still am excited when I think about that. Are there any sort of final conclusions you came to after studying the diamond's impact on world culture? Well, one thing that I'm interested in is why why does the myth of diamonds persist? And so at the very beginning, I asked myself, why can't we abolish the myth or why would we not want to? Why is it still so attractive? And I call it addiction. There is a physiological attraction to the way diamonds are the most refractive and the most reflective mineral. They're also the hardest mineral. And the more people learn how to refine the way it's cut, the more dazzling they are. And people are attracted to dazzle. And their incredible way of making us not be able to look away, that maybe subtends all these myths about their power. And yet we could own a little piece of the rock, a little piece of it. I don't want to make them, I think I made them sound too wicked, and yet they are associated with death and death dealing. And in the literature, if somebody has a a big diamond, the best way to clean yourself of what the baggage of it is to throw it in the water, to throw it away, to give it up. And yet we keep, it keeps on today in the newspaper, it keeps on selling, sells newspapers, sells everything. It's a great symbol. I've had the pleasure of speaking today with Professor Adrian Munich, author of Empire of Diamonds, Victorian Gems in Imperial Settings recently published by the University of Virginia Press. Adrian, from our first discussion of this project at the annual meeting of the Modern Language Association back in 2017, to your book's recent publication on the anniversary of Queen Victoria's birthday, it has been such a pleasure to work with you and speak with you today. Thanks for joining me to discuss Empire of Diamonds. You can find Adrian Munich's book, Empire of Diamonds, Victorian Gems and Imperial Settings at upress.virginia.edu or wherever else books are sold. UVA Press Presents is a podcast by the University of Virginia Press and a member of the Virginia Audio Collective. Many thanks to UVA Press Editor-in-Chief Eric Brandt and Dr. Adrian Munich. UVA Press Presents is produced by Mary Garner McGee. Our theme music is Greylock from Blue Dot Sessions.